listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development. Covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. It's good to be back. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host alongside James Fox. We have a trade to react to. The Chicago White Sox under Chris Getz, wheeling and dealing, made first move of Chris Getz's tenure that we can put a stamp on. This is somewhat exciting. I'm feeling a little optimistic. I can't help it. We'll get into it. We also want to talk about Dylan Cease's future because it's important in relation to the 40-man roster and how it's constructed and the future, obviously, of the Chicago White Sox. Plus, there was an interview done on a local Chicago sports radio station with White Sox hitting coach new White Sox hitting coach Marcus Timms. So we'll talk a couple of points that I found to be interesting, get a little bit more insight on what he may provide to the roster, because that's what we're trying to do, we're trying to figure out the philosophies here. And I think it starts with Chris Getz's message. And welcome, everybody, for tuning in and, and listening to us here on the Broadcast Basement Network. Thanks so much for being a supporter. Hearing Chris Getz speak about his vision of the White Sox is refreshing. Knowing that he is the sole decision maker. Talked about this on previous episodes. If there is a mood made, now it could have been influenced by Josh Barfield. We don't know. But if there is a move, we're going to put it on Chris Getz. And I like that. So James, welcome to the podcast. Let's kick this thing off with a reaction to the Chicago White Sox trade with the Atlanta Braves. An interesting one is for a reliever, Aaron Bummer who has team options in 25 and 26, goes to Atlanta in exchange for five players. Michael Soroka, Jared Schuster, shortstop Brandon Shoemake, utility infielder Nicky Lopez, and left-handed pitcher Riley Goins, a 24-year-old who competed in single A. Now, if you remember, Michael Soroka burst on the scene as a 21-year-old in Major League Baseball, ridden with injuries. Jared Schuster, a young arm who pitched predominantly as a starter throughout his career, pitched in the major leagues last season. He will almost certainly be a part of the Chicago White Sox opening day rotation. James, I want to throw it to you, but first let me give my opinion on the trade because here's my reaction when it went down. It was late. It was around 11 o'clock at night. When it went down, I had a hard time getting to bed. I started thinking and thinking and thinking because. It's nice to see them add as much depth as they could with a valuable left-handed relief pitcher that's under team control. Now, people may look at the outside numbers just on the surface of Aaron Bummer's stat line on baseball reference and say, how did they manage this return? Well, this is a very valuable reliever, and the upside is enough for the Braves to say, we have him under control. This is a back-end guy, matchup lefty if necessary, and yet... When you look at the names in return, Atlanta feels pretty good about what they were able to move. I think Jared Schuster is the prize of this return. Braden Shoemake is interesting. It fits exactly what Chris Getz was describing as what he kind of wanted in his players on the field. 
defense first middle infielder. We'll see how he can handle the shortstop position in the major leagues. He's infield depth, but someone who makes a lot of contact. We haven't seen the skill set necessarily translate compared to, I know you have a lot of thoughts on Shoemake itself, James, because out of the draft, he was a pretty highly touted prospect, but he hasn't really translated the, the bat yet, but makes a lot of contact. We want to see him get on base and a very reliable up the middle infielder. Riley Goins, not to be confused with Ryan Goins, is intriguing because of just the uh, the unknown. Uh, young arm, just completed his first season in professional baseball. Nicky Lopez, I'm not really interested in Nicky Lopez, to be honest with you. But Michael Soroka is an elite arm when healthy. Dealt with a plethora of injuries. But when he is completely 100%, this is a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. And for a one-year flyer type, why not? Let him work. Let him get back to maybe what he was or close to that prior to missing essentially two full seasons plus because of injury. The Jared Schuster thing, like I said, is nice because he's a young arm under control and the White Sox need to fill out the rotation. But Braden Shoemake is also something to me that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable because when you look at the infield depth at the minor league system within the White Sox, you think of Romy Gonzalez, you think of Zach Remillard, you think of Lenin Sosa, you think of Jose Rodriguez. Add to that. There's nothing wrong with it. James, over to you. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. I mean, the, the one thing that you said that, like, I kind of laughed how you said you were awake for it. I was not. I was glad that I was not. It's like one of the first things I told my wife, like, in the morning, I was like, oh, God, like, the White Sox made a trade. That's good. But I'm glad that I was, like, asleep for it because I would have, like, stayed up all night probably. Like, you know, going back, like, looking at old reports and kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember these guys. Like, they were first-round picks. You know, I thought it was interesting. You know, like, the more I've looked at it, like, you know, you've kind of, talk to people and it it does look like, you know, some scraps like from Atlanta. But the one thing is Aaron Bummer wasn't going to help the 2024 White Sox. I'm guessing this is, you know, the most that they had in a return. He struggled a little bit last year, but you know, it's lots of ground balls. He'll be much more effective on a good team. So like I, I bet Atlanta and their fans um, are, are happy about this because they didn't really give up much that was, gonna like affect their team other than maybe Schuster you know and they got like a premium piece out of their bullpen so like I like Schuster the best he hasn't been great um his velocity dipped a little bit he has not been as good as he was like towards the end at Wake Forest but one thing about Jared Schuster like coming out of that program huge on pitch data um he, he's he's like a very analytical like pitching mind so he's he's the type of guy who like I would love to find out Brian Bannister's thoughts on him and what they can turn him into. Cause look, I mean, if, if Jared Schuster is like your number five starter with five years of control, I mean, that trade's probably worth it just for him, in my opinion. And then you have Mike Soroka for one year. You know, the good thing about Soroka is his stuff was like kind of back this year in the minors, even though he got hurt again, he had, you know, like a forearm issue to end the year, which is always the boogeyman, the forearm. Right. But I feel like the White Sox wouldn't have made the trade if they were concerned with that. So like, it is only one year for him. Maybe if he bounces back, you trade him or you keep him or whatever, but he's another one of these guys who's, you know, he's, he's um, very fiery on the mound. He's another leader type, but he's just, you know, been hurt a ton. So he definitely gets a rotation spot. Um, Schuster has options. So he could be in Charlotte or in the rotation, but I mean, 
I think he's the the longest term piece of all these guys. My guess is the White Sox are pretty excited about Nicky Lopez. And look, it's like the Naperville thing, and like it's fine. And people like little scrappy guys. And somehow he put up a six war season with the Royals, which is crazy. But he's a really really good defender. Um, so like if this team's gonna focus on defense, like I think they are. Like it makes some sense, right? Nicky Lopez is not a long-term middle infielder on a contender, but he could be your utility guy and he's a definite big leaguer, you know? So I think I saw some Atlanta fans that were a little bit upset about him, like being gone. They didn't really care that much about the others. It doesn't seem like, and then Braden Shoemake is interesting. He's another big shortstop. He's like six, four, you know, he was a first round pick. What it was in, in 20, I believe. Cause he's on the 40 man. So, and he just, he just hasn't hit. Um, you know, his, his defense, I guess, wasn't as good last year necessarily in the minors, but he's always been like a really good defender in the middle infield. Um, he, he just hasn't hit. So I think it's like one of these guys where he's just like a tweener and has to kind of decide what he wants to be. Like he hit for some power in college. And then I think he tried to hit for power in as a professional, but then he sacrificed average and all this other stuff. Right. So he kind of needs to decide if he wants to be like one of these small ball guys or hit like 240 and, and hit homers. But I mean, he does have multiple defensive homes on the infield. So I think he's a definite big leaguer. I just, you know, I don't know if he's a regular, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a five for one. Chris Getz talked about, multiplying and I think he might do it again or at least try to like a couple more times just for similar stuff because we'll get into the 40 man there's uh it's full but there's a lot of space on it if you know what I mean well we're going to get into that right now because the 40 man decision started with rule five protection it included Jake Eater and Christian Meta. they left off Wilfred Varis and uh, Matthew Thompson among others uh, those were I guess we included those two because maybe most appealing to outside organizations, but the decision was made and they tendered contracts to everybody who was up for arbitration or pre-arbitration. And I know you have thoughts on this, James. So I want to throw it right back to you. Matt Foster was tendered a contract. He was probably the biggest question mark among the bunch. But when you look at the roster in total right now as a 40-man group, just because it's full now doesn't mean that there's not going to be changes, right? I think the White Sox have plenty of flexibility to move guys off the 40-man if necessary to make room for future acquisitions. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there, so there's lots of space on the 40-man roster. The one thing that I, I was, I guess, a little taken aback by was just like the amount of people that kind of were surprised that there weren't more non-tenders because I think you look at the White Sox roster and you see like a lot of expendable players. But like all the guys that are ARB eligible, like they're, they're all kind of no brainers, right? Like other than Matt Foster, who you kind of just talked about, like there's a lot of guys on this roster. Like I think even Gavin Sheets is like pre ARB um, Andrew Vaughn. There's like a whole bunch of names like that, where you just, you weren't going to get rid of anybody necessarily. So like the, the, the rosters at 40, um, at any point, if you sign a free agent or you make a trade, you know, you're going to have to stay at 40. So like you could DFA one of these guys who's on this list, you know, there's a chance for you to keep them. They could go back into your, your minor league system or whatever. But if you like start non-tendering people that are pre-arb, they just like are off your, like off your team, like immediately and become free agents. It just like, 
doesn't really make that much sense. But I mean, you know, like we've talked about this a little bit, like Alex Spees, Jesse Schultens, Lane Ramsey, Johan Ramirez, Sammy Peralta, Edgar Navarro, right? I mean, and those are just six names, but I mean, there's just like a lot of guys on this roster that are somewhat expendable. Um, I know you and Elijah kind of, you guys talked about the 40 man or the, the deadline for rule five, Christian Mena and Jake Eater were the two that made the most sense. Those two were added, but yeah, I just, I think from a like purely like transactional phase, like going forward, even though the roster's at 40, they will not have any problems like adding free agents or making trades and having enough space like on their roster, basically. And I'm not too worried about the way they'll maneuver their 40 man to make room for necessary acquisitions. And when I say that, it leads us to another point that I think is the right time to discuss Dylan Cease. I think I, I know he is the most valuable piece that's up for trade outside of Luis Robert. And the question is, is it good now to move him, or is it better to allow him a, a you know a first half of the season and then let the bidders bid by the trade deadline. And when I think about it more and more, I didn't like it with two and a half years left in last year's deadline because I just don't think the value in return would be representative to what uh, is necessary in order to move Dylan Cease in ace. I know he was down last year, but a top of the rotation arm with two and a half years left to control. Now, though, in the offseason with two full years, I think you have a lot of leverage. The ball is in the White Sox court because first and foremost, I look at Aaron Nola's contract that he signed. That's a prime arm off the market. And when you look at the free agents available, I I don't see very many names that are as attractive as Dylan Cease. And I think it allows Chris Getz to really use the value of Cease and the interest of contenders uh, to his benefit and to take in as much information as possible. I am now rooting for the White Sox to move Cease before the beginning of the season. I, It's not that I'm worried about his performance across the first half of 2024 in the effort of potentially trading him by the deadline. I think it's just it makes more sense to allow a team to take on that contract of two full years and allow him an offseason to work in your system. And you could just, I think you just get the most value out of it now. What do you think about the possibility, the timeline, and what they could potentially get for Dylan Cease? Yeah, so I think it's like, you know, next or or close to next, right? I mean, Bob Nightingale mentions it in his notes column that they're in like active talks with the Dodgers. Um, you know, a lot of times when some of that stuff leaks by the White Sox, like in the with the old front office, it meant that, you know, they were trying to like push another team to make a deal, right? Like I don't know why Chris Gatz would be any different. So I mean, we heard teams, I heard, you know, at the deadline you know, that the Diamondbacks were like the team that came the closest, which was a little bit surprising because I don't really know what they would target from them necessarily. But, you know, I think the dream is Baltimore gets involved and gets you some of their like young left-handed bats. You know, they have Heston Kerstad and Colton uh, Colton Kowser, but like, the, the, you know, they just have loads of prospects that are like blocked potentially. Joey Ortiz is a shortstop prospect that's interesting. Kobe Mayo um, is a young third baseman. But yeah, I mean, I think Dylan Cease is going to bring back a lot. I mean, it's two years of control. He's very cheap compared to, you know, what like a comparable pitcher would cost on the free agent market, kind of like what you were talking about. You know, I think Aaron Nola, that's a big deal. And Blake Snell is going to get more than that. And, you know, Yamamoto is going to get more than him. And 
you know, maybe something between, you know, like Jordan Montgomery is a fallback, but he's probably going to get a hundred million dollars too. You know, and Dylan Cease is going to cost around eight million this year and twelve next year. I mean, it's a bargain. The Sox should do very well here, um, and the Dodgers, man, that's just there are very interesting trade packages that you could get from the Dodgers, and I, I don't really know necessarily what the White Sox under Chris Getz would prioritize. I mean, it's easy to look and see like Dalton Rushing, who you know, is one of the better prospects in baseball, but even the Dodgers, like, I'm not sure they think he's going to catch long-term. He might be more of like a sometimes catcher that can mash, right. And play first and play some other spots, potentially, you know, the guy that I find very interesting is Andy. I think it's Piet Pajes. Um, it looks like it's spelled like pages. Um, he's going to be 23 pretty soon. I mean, he's had like a 900 OPS every year in the minors as like a prototypical right fielder, but he hits right-handed. Um, and then they just have a ton of pitching, like a lot of close to the majors pitching Emmett Sheehan and Nick Frasso. And there's just, there's just a whole bunch of names. And you would think that the white Sox would want some pitching in return for Dylan sees. I don't really mind if it's a heavy position player package because, you know, like we've talked about a lot of the young pitchers, the white Sox have, and I'm not sure they have an ACE like outside of Noah Schultz, but I do think they have like some guys that are going to pitch in the big leagues. So at some point I do like think that you need to add to like a young position player core. I think it could be with the Dodgers or Orioles for Dylan Cease, you know, if they happen to do that. And then the, I guess the one other name that like you'll see mentioned is Michael Bush who can really hit. Um, but, but like, I'm not, I'm not really sure that Michael Bush is going to fit the defensive profile at second that this new front office is looking for. So I think that's another guy that could end up at like, DH or first base because he's not an everyday second baseman. So yeah, this is going to be interesting. Um, the question that you brought up just about like when, uh, like I have the same question. Like, do you do you trade Dylan Cease now? Is somebody going to be willing to give you everything you want for him now? Like, are teams, you know, going to want to like see the free agent pitching market play out before they would make a deal? You know, for a Dylan Cease, I think Corbin Burns of the Brewers is in the same boat. So just a little bit interested to just see how that market plays out and how quickly Chris gets like feels like striking here. There's a number of names, like you said, not only that could potentially be future white Sox, but also within the farm system already, you already made a, a deal that brought in arms, Kai Bush, Jake Eater, Nixon Strain, to name a couple, but also we're looking ahead to Jonathan Cannon's season. And also to just to build on it further, this is a little bit, further down the line, but Seth Keener is somebody that might fly under the radar as one of the better White Sox arms across 2024 minor league system. And also Grant Taylor is going to be healthy and he's going to throw when you watch him work, it jumped, the ball jumps out of his hand. And when you watch video, he's, he's some that you can start getting giddy about. Uh, obviously he has to prove that he's healthy and, and get on the mound and pitch, but the White Sox are stacking names and that's the goal right now and Chris Getz is trying to execute that plan and I'm thinking ahead too you think about the 40-man roster how are these position players going to respond after a full year in double a essentially together right you think of the core that was a part of Project Birmingham a lot of them spend time in double a at the tail end of the season see where they begin and see where they end I'd like to see you know production obviously in double a but will they get to Charlotte this year does it matter if they get to Charlotte this year Taking that to the big league club, 
the White Sox introduced Marcus Timms as their new hitting coach. And he was on inside the clubhouse on 670 of the score with Bruce Levine and Mike Esposito a little over a week ago. And it was interesting just to hear him talk about the job. And there were a couple of points that I wanted to highlight from the interview. He talked about his former time as a player. And, you know, he didn't jump off the page at you and necessarily anything that he did offensively. But he highlighted the fact that he was a good teammate, right? I mean, that's good to know. Somebody who is willing to talk or pick the brains of his teammates and try to help improve those while he's a player. That's maybe something that sounds like common sense as a major league professional when you're a teammate. But to know that he is curious enough to help or to learn from others is a positive step as a player. And he's taking that approach as a coach. He is very specific about highlighting the fact that he treats every individual player differently because they are unique. And I think that is step one to understand and highlight that because players respond to instruction differently. They take in information or they apply it differently. They have different skill sets. Of course, there's different mechanical tweaks that they would take to. And I think Highlighting that feature or just that quality in a hitting coach is so important. I don't know uh, what Jose Cruz was doing or Todd Stevenson before and Frank Manichino, what what their plans were. I so disconnected from all of it. But hearing Marcus Timms talk about the connection to the player was important to me. And also he said, and he kind of made this a point, that we, as in I'm quoting him, we will be prepared for every pitcher that they face in a series. Again, bare minimal, common sense type things. But to hear him say that they are going to have plans, have players study up on the arms in the pen, arms in maybe coming up in the minor leagues or any starting rotation, uh, any pitcher within a starting rotation that they're planning to face within a series. Study up, be ready, and understand what you're looking for when you get to the box. And that's the beginning of an approach. You have to find a collective approach. Watching the White Sox over the last handful of seasons go up there flailing away, not having a clue at what's coming at them was maddening. And I want that to change. And Chris Getz bringing on guys who make contact, ball and play type. That's what he wants to see. Marcus Timms, somebody who really did emphasize power as a hitting coach in his previous destinations. I'm curious to see how he's going to manage both philosophies, hitting for power and also putting the ball in play, James. Yeah, so like when I first like started researching Marcus Timms, when I like kind of got tipped off that that they were going to hire him as the hitting coach, I was excited just because of some of the things that he had preached, like when he was with the Yankees, and then obviously there was success with the Angels. I mean, he's coaching like what two of the best players on the planet, right? So that's like not necessarily up to Marcus Timms, but the overall number is like he improved their their walk rate, which I thought was impressive. Some of the stuff that I'd read about him was promising, you know, and then his first indoctrination to the White Sox in his media call, he said some stuff that was a little bit alarming to me just because, you know, the, he kind of talked about the team that Chris gets and Pedro want. And he kind of like, you know, talked about like the small ball stuff and like bunting and hitting and running and kind of talked about the playoffs and how, like when you watch the playoffs, it's prevalent and it's really not like the diamondbacks did it, but you know, generally in the playoffs, the team that hits the most homers wins the series. And like, I really believe that now, you know, I think he redeemed himself quite a bit. Like on Saturday, when I heard him talk, like some of the stuff that he said about Eloy Jimenez, like that's the type of stuff that I've been waiting 
you know, to hear, like he was flat out honest about saying like, look, Eloy Jimenez swings too much. Like he swings at pitchers pitches and tries to make too much contact instead of controlling the zone and hitting your pitches essentially. Right. And it's look practice what we preach, right? Like we've had other hitting coaches kind of talk about this stuff, but at least that's the, that's the right message. I think with your power guys, the white Sox have, have had issues over the years with pulling the baseball. They, they don't hit for power to the pull side. You know, there's lots of walk issues. So, you know, he's not a miracle worker, but you know, I'm interested just to kind of see the approach for, for Marcus Timms. And I, you know, I kind of like hitting coaches that, you know, similar to him who had big league careers, but you know, not like super stellar big league careers. But I do feel like if you just look at his stats against the White Sox, I bet they're pretty good. Cause I remember when he was on Detroit, like Marcus yeah. Timms was on base all the time. He would like get on base, like against Chris sale constantly. That's how I kind of remembered when, when I heard that they were hiring him, I was like, Oh, Marcus Timms, I know him. So, but yeah, the good, pretty, pretty good stuff on Saturday. I feel a little bit better. I'm curious too how Mike Tozar is going to influence the roster or how engaged he's going to be with the big league club, James, because I, that was, I was pretty optimistic about that hire. Obviously it's Pedro's guy, but mm-hmm. to be a major league fo- field coordinator, I just didn't know what the hell he was doing. Well, so I wonder if like major league field coordinator is like a legit promotion. So they just like made up a title so that Pedro right. could bring his buddy over, you know? And then, cause he was doing hitting stuff in Kansas city. And obviously like we, we talked to our buddy, Alex fuse, right. And mm-hmm. he kind of knew him. And I don't remember off the top of my head, some of those like personal stories, but look, there were some guys who felt really connected to Mike Tozar that thought Mike Tozar really helped them. So you know, he, he's going to be the assistant hitting coach. You know, I won't hold his choice of best friend against him um, <laughs> in, in this instance necessarily. Sorry, I had to get one in on, on Pedro. Yeah, but no, so we'll see. I mean, it's it's two voices. I feel like last year it was kind of three. Like you had Jose Castro and um, what, Chris Johnson. But then like Tozar was on staff and while he was the field coordinator, like I'm pretty sure he was working with the hitters, right? And Pedro Grafo was like a former hitting coach as well. So I just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if like last year was a disaster. I don't know what anybody was doing. I don't know if like there's discombobulated messages. There definitely was under Tony. So, you know, maybe one unified message would be great. Hopefully it's Marcus Timms that's preaching it as of now, because we still don't have any clarity on whether or not, you know, there's going to be some sort of Brian Bannister on the hitting side. If there is, that that person has not been hired. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I called Jose Castro, Jose Cruz earlier. That's how forgettable he is, in my opinion. I mean, it's so disappointing to hear that a hitting coach brought in with a new staff is gone after one season. But it is what it is, and it's a show run by Chris Getz. Just to wrap up the hitting conversation, I want competitive at-bats, man. The White Sox were just too easy to beat. And starting pitchers in this day and age – Going six, seven innings is somewhat of an anomaly, not necessarily that far, but you get what I'm saying. Whenever a starter pitched against the White Sox, it seemed like they were easy breezy through the one through nine. And, you know, efficient pitch counts, it's just like James was mentioning, they're swinging at pitchers' pitches, they're getting themselves out, they're behind in the count more often than not, and I want to see that change. 
to wrap up the episode, James, I do want to throw it to you for the article that you did put together um, last week. And it relates to the Major League Baseball draft lottery. Now, this is interesting because to preface it, we know that the White Sox are more than likely going to be among the bottom 10 teams again in Major League Baseball record-wise. This year, they have a top six pick. They're in the lottery mix. And because of the rules, since they are a, they are a major market club and a part of the draft lottery this year, no matter where they stand next year record-wise, they may not be eligible or they won't be eligible to be included in the draft lottery. Could you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, so the rules are uh, not great for for teams like the White Sox. Um, so you know the the league is just you know they're putting in a lot of anti tanking measures. We've talked about this a lot, like on the show, but it didn't really affect like our team before. So the Angels, or not the Angels, I'm sorry, the the Nationals are dealing with it now. I'd have to look. They won 71 games, I think. So they're they'd be like right in the six or seven like range as far as odds, but they're not allowed to pick until ten. So. You know, essentially what Major League Baseball did was any any of the big market clubs, like if they pick in the top six, they're not allowed to do so like in successive years. So the Nationals picked second last year. They're not allowed to pick higher than 10th. My interpretation of that rule is the teams with the bottom three records all have the same odds for number one. I think those teams are guaranteed to pick seven, eight, nine. So six teams could essentially jump them into the lottery, but it still guarantees those teams seven, eight, nine, which is why the Nationals can't pick until 10. Well, the White Sox would be in the same boat next year because like, as I wrote in the article, they have an 83% chance to pick in the top six and they have a really good shot at picking top three. And if they do so, regardless of how bad they are in 2024, 10 is like the highest they can pick next year. So I guess I just like kind of posed the question you know, in a draft that's not that star studded at the top, like, is it the worst case scenario if they fell out of the lottery and picked seventh so that they're still in contention for a top six pick next year? Now, look, it could backfire, right? You, you could pick seven this year and six next year, and it's not that great. So I guess like my, my thought process on this is like, if they can land top three, I'll be happy about it. They'll get a good player. Um, but if they end up five or six, it's really kind of like worst case scenario at this point, since you really can't pick till 10 the following year anyway. So just, you know, kind of something for people to keep in mind. There's all sorts of like weird things with like the Mets could be really affected and the Padres and Yankees picks drop back 10 spots. So th there's like some other wonky stuff too. We won't, we won't really learn about it until day two of the winter meetings. Um, December 5th. And obviously like we'll podcast about the draft lottery after that, but you know, it's like four 30 in the afternoon on the second day of the winter meetings, we will find out where the white Sox pick in the first round um, with the fourth worst record. They do have the fourth pick in every other round. Um, but the first round's not decided yet. Just a little something to keep in mind. Just understanding that 2024 is more than likely going to be, a tough watch for the Chicago White Sox, but there's reason to watch because we will be seeing a number of prospects and a lot of depth that Chris Getz is adding from outside the organization for the first time. We've been covering these prospects for years. James, good to talk to you again. It's always fun to just talk about the White Sox. That's what we do all the time. FutureSox.com is the source. 
as we wrap up this episode, I mean, that first trade, we talked about it at the beginning of the episode. Early impressions of Chris Getz. I know you're following the comments that he spoke in the GM meetings, as well as what you see in the pressers or the uh, the media sessions following the trade. Early impressions of Chris Getz. Are you liking what you're hearing? Yeah, I think I'm fine so far. You know, I think like we were unfair or people were unfair to Chris Getz just because of like, you know, he's he's an internal hire. But I mean, it doesn't mean he's going to be exactly the same as his bosses. Like, well, you know, we'll see what he does. I'm not that freaked out long term over some of the stuff that maybe I don't love initially. Right. Just with like the way they want to play. I don't really buy into the small ball. Like, I, I don't think they really want to play like that. I just think it's like the easiest way to not look awful every night. Right. I think that's like a big thing for Chris Getz. Like there are some rumors that Chris Getz wants to like lead baseball in like defense, like soon, which look, I mean, it would, it would be like a big difference, right? Like if you could improve your defense substantially and bring up a bunch of young pitchers, like you, you might be able to uh, like help those guys a little bit more than you would otherwise. And you just might play baseball a little bit different initially until, you know, Colson Montgomery is up with Luis Robert and I'm sure they'll try to add more, you know, impact offense along the way. But look, I think Chris Getz understands like, you know, you have to get on base and, and hit for power at some point, even though it might not come necessarily in year one. I think it's, I think it's going to be pretty active. I think we're going to record, you know, a lot more of these podcasts, like talking about like potential trades or moves, because I just, you know, I think you hit it early, early two weeks and weeks ago. I, I just expect this team to look a lot different because when Chris Getz says he doesn't like the baseball team, like I, I, you know, I have no reason to not believe him because it definitely did not work like the, you know, the way that they put it together. If you want to focus on defense now, go for it. There's not a lot of pop in the lineup and the White Sox need to improve, obviously, in that regard, in both regards, to be quite frank. He made an appearance, did Chris Getz, on MLB Network, and he focused on up the middle. I mean, he really made it a point to say, he wants to shore up shortstop, second base. He's got Luis Robert already in center and the catching position. So we know Edgar Caro's waiting in the wings. There's going to be moves to be made because right now the catching situation is rough at the big league level. That's his job. That's not ours. Ours is to react to everything that goes on in the world of the Chicago White Sox. It's a pleasure to talk to you, the listener. Support us on Patreon if you're willing. FutureSox.com. He's James Fox at JamesFox917. I'm at Rankin906 on Twitter, at FutureSox, FutureSox at gmail.com if you'd like to send us an email. We have emails. I want to read them. We will get to them. So thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sticking around to the Future Sox podcast. For James Fox, I'm Mike Rankin. We'll talk to you all next week.